Welcome to Corps Struction, a show about the missions, activities, and employees of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I'm Brandon Parrish. Today I'm joined by Bobby Petty of the Fort Worth District. Bobby is deployed to Baton Rouge, Louisiana in support of Hurricane Ida relief efforts. Bobby is serving as the liaison between the Corps of Engineers, FEMA, and state and local officials at the Baton Rouge Joint Field Office. Bobby has been deployed to Louisiana since the start of the emergency response efforts. First of all, I want to thank you for uh, joining us, uh, Bobby. You arrived in Louisiana shortly after Hurricane Ida passed through the region. Um, So what were your initial thoughts on the ground seeing the the damage? Okay, so, yeah, I haven't had an opportunity to get out and see the worst of the damage near New Orleans. Uh, What I've seen thus far tends to be more... uh, issues with infrastructure. I think when I first arrived here in the New Orleans, uh, I'm sorry, in the Baton Rouge area, there was no electricity ar- around the command center where uh, FEMA was, uh, and where we were set up in the JIC, uh, uh, the Joint Information Center. And it slowly started to come on at various places, but initially I had to stay two hours north of here because I couldn't find an, a hotel for myself to, to buy it in because there was nothing available. The, the very, very first responders and a lot of the people who needed to get into hotels from, that were in the, in, directly in the, the line of fire of Hurricane Ida, they were already in those hotels. So when the first responders, like myself, started showing up, the, the kind of the second wave on day three, two or three, the hotels were mostly gone. So in my case, I had to uh, live uh, about two hours north for about the first 11 or 12 days uh, which was, it was good because I did have a good internet connection for my job. I had good power and and the infrastructure was still largely in place. But like I said, as soon as I started coming down here to uh, about two hours south uh, in Baton Rouge, that's when you started seeing the, the damage. In fact, on day two, I went ahead and um, after I, actually day one, day, day two, when I, when I came down, I had the uh, government was a Sado, uh, the, uh, on day two, I had Sado set up for me a hotel room in Hammond, Louisiana. I left, I did a good 14-hour day. I left and drove uh, east of Hammond, Louisiana, just to find out the entire city had no electricity. The uh, hotel even went so far as to uh, charge my uh, credit card, which I got off eventually, but uh, I had uh, no hotel to go to, even though the reservation was made there, and I had to drive another three and a half hours Getting in about 1 a.m. on day now three, uh, up to my hotel and checked in there and uh, had to stay there off and on coming, coming down here and teleworking to some, some degree. The teleworking has actually been uh, kind of helpful. I think you know, we've learned a lot from COVID uh, that we can do a lot of our job without having to be in the office all the time. Of course, you can't replace the interaction that you get being face-to-face with somebody. But there's a lot of the aspects of our job that we can do remotely uh, and even today, uh, we have 394 people that are deployed with another 449 that are helping uh, with the efforts uh, in various other places. So um, I think we've learned that with COVID and, and with the whole concept of teleworking, it does give us a little flexibility in situations like this where, in, in this case, the infrastructure has been hit, been hit pretty hard, the hotels aren't there, and just all the other things that uh, people need to be able to help other people recover, we don't have to have as big of a footprint 
in the disaster area with, with some of the, many of the support mechanisms can be done remotely so it's not impacting the, the disaster area. Um, you know, yeah, it's interesting you bring that up too because, um, you know, sometimes you could end up competing with local people for hotel rooms, you know, so. Well, I'll tell you, in my case, like I said, uh, many, many of us had to fend for ourselves trying to find the hotel rooms. It, the area had already still been, it's still recovering from Hurricane Laura last year. They said several hurricanes uh, this area did last year. And the, many of the hotels were still affected. The downtown area in Baton Rouge was up pretty quickly in terms of electricity, but then uh, other areas, a good portion of the city wasn't for a good week or more. And what that meant was you had the, the effect of hotels, weren't, many hotels weren't even open because they didn't have the electricity to support the, the people who would be staying there. And then you had the other effect of the hotels being taken up either by survivors who had gotten out of the way of the hurricane or um, offshore workers and other people who were pre-positioning or uh, I, I guess they were getting off. In, in the case of the oil, uh, oil workers, they were getting off the oil rigs. In the case of other folks that were pre-positioning uh, to support the recovery whenever that would, would come, there were just no hotels available. And many of us had to struggle for the first couple of weeks, and that, well, that was uh, unusual. When I did Hurricane Ida, not Hurricane Ida, I'm sorry, when I did Hurricane Dorian, Two years ago in Charleston, I didn't have that issue. I was able to preposition. I found a hotel. I was able to get in, and you know, simple thing like lodging is not that big of a, of a deal in terms of what we're here for. We're here to support the recovery efforts, but you, sometimes you just have to be completely flexible um, and be willing to not have to have the luxuries because we're not here for the luxuries either. I, I know in my case, when I left Fort Worth. I think it was we yeah, late Wednesday night. I made sure that I had everything, everything I could possibly need for up to 30 days. So that includes water, food, a sleeping bag in case I had to sleep where, wherever, pillows. I mean, just really anything. So if I even had to sleep in my truck for a period of time until things got back to normal, or at least started, they were things. The, things that we would normally expect to have in an emergency situation like this started to, to get set up for the, for the um, uh, recovery uh, force that was here. Um, I was ready for it, and I, I still, still as I just got, I'm extending now 10 days beyond what I initially uh, signed up for, so I'm here for 40, 40, 41 days total. And I have to make sure I have enough medicine. i got to make sure uh, uh, food and uh, everything back home is taken care of. So, yeah, you, there is a good deal of planning ahead that has to happen even before we get that phone call to say, hey, can you be the, be wherever in 12, 24 hours? We always have to be prepared. So that, that's always a, that's always an interesting line. Yeah, and you got that phone call before um, – you got that phone call before before the hurricane landed, right? Well, yes. In my, in my case um, – well, ironically, I'm I'm in the usual spot. I'm in the I'm the public affairs ESF 15. You you say FEMA li- liaison. So I'm the interface, if you were, between FEMA and the Army Corps on the public affairs side. And I'm in a course right now with FEMA. It's, it's the top level course. It's called the Master Public Information Officer course. 
I'm in, I was going to finish up the same, actually last week, but I went ahead and, and canceled. I'm going to be in next year's class to finish up that, uh, that well, the cohort rather, to finish up the third class. But I was wrapping up my paper. I had a very, uh, very detailed research paper, 15 pages and all the other um, uh, references and whatnot to it that I was wrapping up the night before I got the phone call. And I'm trying to throw this thing together, wrap it up so I can send it off to my instructor and then start packing up the next day so I can head out in the evening. When I finally got a rental car, it, it, that was actually that was a, a, a little showstopper at first because we couldn't find rental, rental cars in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area at all. Um, the, the travel agency, the government travel agency, they were unable to find us anything. And I had some local connections, people I knew, you know, that, that new people that could get us a, get me a car, um, but I even had to wait a whole day just for a car so I could then drive out here for the month and um, be able to go wherever I needed to go. And uh, yeah, sometimes when you're in a disaster and you're close to the disaster, um, you just have to be flexible and take what you can get. <laughs> so that's what I did, and as soon as I got the car, I drove on out here, uh, and literally on the drive out, I didn't even know where I was going to be staying. I, I live in Fort Worth. I uh, left at about 4 p.m. that day, uh, kept driving eastward, and finally we decided to, for me to st settle down in Lafayette, and I called ahead, got a hotel maybe 30, 45 minutes prior, parked in there, pulled everything out of my, my truck that I didn't want to leave in the tr uh, truck overnight, Took it off my room, got six, seven hours of sleep, and then headed back out to try to drive the rest of the way down uh, to Baton Rouge, where I am now. Um, so, have you guys got a total of the damages uh, to the area in terms of the financial impact that the hurricanes made? Well, yeah. Well, Hurricane Ida was interesting in that it not only affected the Louisiana Mississippi coast, but it went all the way up and affected the Northeast as well. Um, I. I think I read recently that uh, just in the Louisiana area, the damages are probably around 18 to 20 billion dollars. Uh, and when you throw in what was also, also uh, how it was affected up in the Northeast as well, it's looking anywhere I see on the low estimate for 40 billion, on the high estimate 80 to 90 billion. So it's uh, I believe the sixth most costly storm in, in U.S. history, which is pretty significant. It didn't seem like it was that big of a deal, but it, it really was in terms of how it affected two ends of the country um, and caused a lot of damage, uh, even though it was a level, I think it was a Category 3. So, yeah, it caused a very good amount of damage. As a liaison, you're, a commu you're the sort of a communications hub but an information hub between, you know, states, federal agencies, municipal, municipal authorities. From your perspective, what is that like being sort of in the center of the ring with, with different questions coming to you from different locations? What I see my role is passing information back and forth between agencies to help, help people out in the field that uh, need help, our, our, our workers as well as, of course, the survivors that we're trying to help. Um, FEMA has certain things that they obviously do, so does the Army Corps. We specialize specifically in infrastructure uh, recovery um, in order to get that information back and forth so we can then help the public because we have information in terms of uh, 
oh, infrastructure, I'm thinking like power, thinking like uh, particularly the Blue Roof mission that we have ongoing right now. Uh, getting that information back and forth and then, well, getting the information from the Army Corps to FEMA, that's important. And then also having an ear to what FEMA is doing and seeing how we can multiply and, and magnify their efforts and how they can magnify our efforts. I might hear occasionally some information that I think, wow, that could be really useful if the, if the commander knows. And sometimes the commander doesn't know, but oftentimes he does. But when he doesn't, it's really, really helpful. He's really thankful that uh, he has, I guess, a conduit or someone who's listening in on to what FEMA's doing so that way we don't get left out of something that's important uh, that they're, they're doing in a way that we can assist them. Yeah, that's when that whole uh, what do I know, who doesn't know, and have I told them question comes up. Well, yeah, I mean, a good example of that is uh, right now with the Blue Roof mission. The Blue Roof mission, the sign-up for it ends on September 30th, as we're talking right now. Generally, those things are extended. We know that there's various deadlines that the state is, is in the process of asking for, and that's the way the process works. The state has to ask for the emergency declaration to begin, and then also has to ask for the extensions. FEMA then, it's up to FEMA, and I believe the president, to, to accept or, or, or deny the, the request, but normally, especially the first time that happens. Well, I went ahead and because my, my uh, connections with, uh, plugged into FEMA and fl plugged into the state of Louisiana, I sent a little, I'm going to say, a reminder out to my counterpart at the um, state DHS or uh, uh, Homeland Security um, communications director saying, hey, uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys are tracking it. As a courtesy, though, I'm just letting you know that the deadline for the Blue Roost, because it's a different date than other, other dates, expires on Thursday, the, the 30th of September. If you haven't made a request or if the state hasn't made a request, I'm just letting you know that date exists. And that way it's covered. And when that person has an ear, uh, has the governor's ear, they, he can then pass it on to the governor and Governor Edwards can then uh, request it if that's what he wants to do. Uh, you mentioned Blue Roof, and can you can you tell people who who don't know who are listening um, what what is the Blue Roof mission and, and what does that look like? Probably the biggest impact that we we're having right now in Louisiana is the Blue Roof mission, helping protect people's property in particular from the damage that. Hurricane Laura caused with, with the high winds and, and how it damaged the roofs. Normally, in a situation like this, you're talking about widespread damage. You need to have thousands of roofs in, uh, or hundreds of roofs in a certain in a specific subdivision that may be affected. And in order to get in there and, and, and repair those roofs, sometimes it takes um, several weeks, several months, in, in fact, to get a roofer in to work out the issues with your insurance company to, to find a reputable contractor to come in and replace your roof. So we're kind of the, uh, the middle part. Now, I want to say it in terms of maybe using a sports analogy, I guess. The, the Band-Aid, you get injured, the, the Band-Aid, the, the first part of the recovery might be the individual going out to their local parish and getting a self-help tarp or maybe buying a tarp at Lowe's or uh, some other some other location like that, and, and putting it on the roof themselves. They had a good portion of several shingles that were knocked off, uh, not torn off by the wind, or maybe a heavy limb came and, and uh, tore some of the pla um, the, the wood, wood the uh, platform, the 
tears out some of the decking, then that's going to be obviously flooding or, or, or rain damage that's going to happen time yeah, after time every time, yeah, water every time it rains. Right, yeah, so, significant water damage, right? Right, and, and those tarps that you can buy at Lowe's or you may, may get from, from, um, from FEMA in the first couple of days, they'll do okay, but not, not very long. That's kind of where the Army Corps will come in in terms of, I would say we're like the, uh, the cast or the, uh, the sports wrap. We'll be able to come in and use that fiber-reinforced sheeting that's much thicker and it's professionally applied. We have professional contractors. Uh, right now, between our three prime contractors are working recovery on this. We have about 500, 550 individual crews, and each one of those crews have four to five people on it. So we literally have a cast of thousands right now that are out there every day applying the blue roof um, repair until finally the people who are living in these homes can get work out however they need to work out with you, whether they're an insurance company or some other, some other mechanism, they can get the long-term fix uh, to take off the cast, take off the sports wrap, and actually get it, it back to normal, get the roof back to normal, if it's possible for that. If, it, if the roof is too far gone, more than 50% damage, we may not be able to help them. But even if there are, there are actual holes in the decking, we can go in and our crews can fix that decking, put the, uh, the blue tarp, the blue roof on there. And even though we say it's 30 days, I want to say that's the official answer, which it is, but I've, I've seen and heard that the roofing um, that we apply actually can last a little bit longer than that. And that's a good thing because sometimes it may take weeks or months for, for people to work out issues with their insurance companies to repair damage to the roof. So that's where we come in is to kind of help with that medium-term wait, medium-long-term wait for people to get the roof fixed. And uh, the Operation Blue Roof website, that's uh, blueroof, B-L-U-E-R-O-O-F dot U-S. There's dot U-S, yes. Yes, dot U-S. Uh, and we, we had a little bit of difficulty initially with that, but we were able to get it working, and it's working uh, very well now. Uh, and, you know, with, with each disaster, you find that you get better and better at what you, what you do. Uh, even, for, for example, right now, we're at day 30 as I'm speaking to you right now. With Hurricane Laura last year, on day 30, we had 3,700 roofs, uh, blue roofs applied. Today, with Hurricane Ida on day 30, we have 8,100 blue roofs applied. So even though we're at that same stage, I think we've learned lessons from, from Hurricane Laura that have made us more efficient uh, to be able to, to get those roofs on. At first, it was starting out real slow, and that's to be expected. When you start from ground zero uh, and not having only the one prime contractor in place and all the, all the rules and mechanisms that, have, that are in place for that, they have to go out and find crews, uh, pull crews from other parts of the country in some cases that can come in and work for up to 60 days to apply, apply the roof, uh, the blue roof repair. So it takes time to, to ramp up, but once you get up and ramped up like we're doing right now, each individual prime contractor, uh, unless there's reasons like, uh, like weather, they can do about 200, they can do a minimum of 200 roofs per day. We had, a, a, I think it was Thursday or Friday of last week, we had more than 1,100 roofs applied in one day by about 500 crews, so that's about two per day. That's actually a very good pace. Uh, if you have good weather and um, you have all the crews in place and the crews can have access to, to the roofs, and it's not, uh, the roads aren't blocked and, and uh, 
they have everything they need. There's not a supply chain issue getting the supplies in so they can actually apply the blue roof fix. They can actually do a very good job, two or three uh, roofs a day per crew times 500 crews. You can make a, a pretty good dent in those numbers. And I, uh, there's like a, it looks like a five-step process, and then there's a timeline after that. And I guess the deadline is coming up for that, for, the, for ap- applying for blue roof assistance? Yeah, the, the deadline is, for, in this case, as I'm talking to you now, is the 30th of September. That's about 70, well, more than 72 hours, about three and a half days from, from now. Um, I would expect, having been enough enough uh, disaster recovery efforts like this, to see that extended. But even though if it's not, we are still, from the public affairs side um, of the Army Corps and working, working through FEMA, we're treating it as if that is the deadline, 30th, uh, 11.59 p.m. on uh, Thursday, September 30th. That is the last minute you have to get in there and make that request. That may be extended, but we're going to do everything we can to get the word out there to as many people as possible who need that help. If you need it, request it, and we'll, get, we'll do everything we can to get that taken care of for them, every person who, who needs it, and um, we'll get that, get that fixed for them. And, and I guess there's a corollary to that as well. If you've already gotten, um, like, say you applied and it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet, but you've already made arrangements with your insurance company and you've already got your roof repaired, it probably would be appreciated if, you, if they call you and, or call uh, the number and uh, cancel that, right? Well, one thing that was really helpful right now um, is going through and, and explaining, I guess, the process to people but also adjusting our numbers so they can actually see the progress that we're doing. Um, as, as we saw the, the numbers start off initially, in the first three days, we had nearly half of the total number um, requested. We have, at the time I'm speaking to you about, 64,000 total requests. 31,000 of those came in the first 72 hours after, after the uh, Blue Roof program was activated. And what we found is that a fair number of, pe- of those people, not all, but uh, a certain number of people made those requests when they were in uh, hotels away from their, safely evacuated from their homes, and they assumed that they would have damage. Well, they were able to get back in a, a, a two or three weeks later after the electricity came back on, after the roads were cleared. They went back home and said, hey, I really don't need damage. Or they may have been able to work out something with their insurance company um, or any other number of issues. There may have been duplicate requests because people didn't know quite how the process works. So as we have gone through and validated those numbers, what we found is that the total number is about one-third more than the actual validated numbers. So, again, as it is today, it's about 40,000 validated requests, and our goal is to make every one of those um, blue roofs or every one of those damaged roofs get a blue roof, get, a, get them fixed so people can continue for, to find those options, either self-help, repair it themselves, find a roofer, uh, whatever they need to do, work out with their insurance companies. Um, and that takes time, so we'll continue getting that, those roofs on to help people. And uh, one of the other missions that are uh, uh, for the, the PRTs um, is the temporary power, emergency power. You guys are 100% of installs. Can you quickly talk about how emergency power works for the generators? Well, a, a good example of that my fiance, she is uh, she works at a hospital. I know every every major hospital is going to have an emergency pa- uh, a generator uh, because 
you never know when the power's going to go out, right? Well, I, I remember driving out here. I heard several of uh, several ho- hotels in various cities where, when the lights went out, the generator did not kick up, kick on. So you have dozens of people, hundreds of people sometimes, that may be very, very dependent in those hospitals that need the electrical power, and the um, it may be difficult because the generators are large. Um, they may have some other other issues, other damage to the, to the grid that uh, leads into the hotel, and or, I'm sorry, the hotel, the hospital, and because of that, they need support now, not five days from now, ten days from, uh, after the disaster happens. So we're there, Johnny on the spot with our crews to get that, get those issues, whatever those issues are. It could be something minor, technically, um, uh, or it could be a major uh, fix where we have to actually bring in a. a totally new generator uh, from, uh, from a, another source into the area and install it temporarily until they can figure out what's going wrong with their generator and get it back up to speed. So yeah, the generator that use that we do isn't associated for, uh, for personal use. It's normally going to be for something that is a critical, uh, critical issue like a hospital. So, um, and, and then you've done some, uh, you guys have done some infrastructure assessments um, and I think there's 165 with some water assessments and wastewater yeah, assessments. Yeah, when you, when you have disasters like this, you're, you're going to have any number of things that are affected in terms of water supply, uh, wastewater that may be uh, damaged in some way. Um, uh, you know, I don't think we actually have this mission, but I know that in, in times past we've gone out and done um, bridge and, and um, trussle inspections uh, that you may have damages from debris that's in, in a river that may flow downstream, hit the, uh, the piers, the uprights, and it's unknown if those, um, those structures are safe for the public to use afterwards. So we'll go in and, and any number of, um, however the, whatever the request is, whatever the needs are for the state, they'll let us know and then we'll find the expertise within the Army Corps to, to get out there figure it out and, and uh, assess for the state to, sa- uh, to say, yes, this is safe, or no, it's not safe. We need to do something. You need to do something, or we'll, we'll try to help you as best we can to make it safe so we can uh, get that part of the infrastructure up and running again. Um, I noticed um, also there was a, a bit in the, in the infographic that, 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 is, uh, that you part of creating. Um, and one of the things that was affected was navigation, I'm, I'm assuming on the Mississippi River there. Uh, can, can you talk about that, how it was impacted, and, and where we are with, with getting it back up? Well, I saw initially when I got here, I, I was still, still learning the job and, and spinning up real quick, but I, I was uh, noticing that in the first almost a couple of weeks, we they had issues getting, that is not, not, I guess, everyone, the whole team. We were there supporting the uh, interagency efforts to reopen the Mississippi and other, uh, other waterways. And you can imagine that there's a lot of a lot of um, a lot of um, infrastructure that there a lot of carriage that's going up and down the river like that. And if you have it blocked, like at one point there was a major power line that I, I remember that was blocking a good portion of the Mississippi and it made it unusable. So remember the, we had uh, the issue uh, a few months ago where we had part of the Suez Canal that was that was blocked and it just caused a, a, a havoc uh, throughout the world's. Uh, Cargo, cargo shipments. We kind of like was going through that for, for a short period of time uh, with the Mississippi, where you had all these these boats and all this cargo that was wanting to go up and down uh, up and downstream, and they couldn't 
because uh, it was un it was unsafe. It was unsafe because because of the power line that we they saw. They eventually uh, basically the, the state I think in I forget which agency it was. They they went in. They uh, explosively um, made the power line break in such a way that it would fall into the water. They were able to confirm where it was. Uh, I'm pretty sure that either the Coast Guard, I know the Army Corps also has various uh, Z-boats and things like that where we can go in and, and take pictures of the bottom of waterways to see what kind of debris there is, to see if there's been shifting in the silt to maybe make the channel not as deep as it was before. So we'll go through and we'll, we'll check to make sure there's no obstructions and that the, the waterway is as deep as it was. So when everyone has the A-OK, -okay, we can, they can uh, start going up and, and get the, um, the, that waterway open again. I remember just for a few days, a couple of days after that, uh, after, before it's fully open, they were only allowed for like one boat at a time in and out, and it was daylight only. Uh, and then it finally got to the point where it is now, which is it's fully up and, up and running, and the Army Corps was part of that to be able to, to get that happen in a quick fashion. A lot of people don't probably understand how that works as far as, you know, when, we're, when we come out, we're requested. So can you kind of talk about the ESF and, and how that framework works and what the Corps' role is as it, as it relates to FEMA and state and local communities? A lot of what you see in disaster recovery is uh, governed by the Stafford Act. And there's other, uh, other bits and pieces of, of various parts of legislature that, that's out there, but I want to say that's kind of the gov governing document. Uh, FEMA has um, um, run, run of that. But normally what you'll see that happen, they either, depending on the level of disaster, and every disaster is different, um, you'll see a, um, either a county commissioner, parish pre president, uh, or someone eventually gets up to the point that uh, the, the governor of each state has to make the request and makes it, makes it to the president. The president then uh, uh, evaluates it, uh, consults with people at the cabinet level, and then he decides whether or not to make that a disaster area. And at that point, once that federal disaster is declared, that's when, when we can, uh, FEMA will activate uh, everything and they'll start, start rolling at that point. And things will begin organizing if they are, hadn't already at the federal level so that when that, that order comes down, they can then say what they can request what's needed. So again, every disaster is different. Uh, in this disaster, for example, we are, the Army Corps under what's called ESF uh, emergency, what does ESF stand for? Emergency su support function. Under ESF three, emergency support function three, that is public works and engineering. Well, that's, that's very much in uh, the wheelhouse of the Army Corps. So there's a whole uh, bunch of expertises that we can bring because that's what we do every day. Uh, we do infrastructure, we do uh, engineering, we do public work. So um, when those disasters hit, we have uh, people who are already gone through the training like myself who are ready to deploy uh, on very short notice and come out and do everything they can, can to help. In the, in the case of this disaster, we're looking at um, infrastructure assessments, underwatering, uh, unwatering, I'm sorry, start uh, from the beginning, uh, infrastructure assessments and unwatering. And unwatering is something actually has been very important and critical in this area because there's so, there's such a, many, so many low-lying areas and, and swamp areas and levees and whatnot that um, you have water that doesn't have anywhere to go or simply maybe it can't go quick enough or maybe the 
outflow is, is blocked in some way. So we have to go in and maybe sometimes make levy cuts um, to relieve the pressure off the levy so it doesn't break. Uh, so we have to do that safely. We may have to install emergency pumps because maybe some pumps aren't working or maybe there's no pumps at all. So um, there's a, a whole slew of that. Of course, there's the uh, emergency generators, uh, the navigation channels that we help out with, and the technical assistance too. One of the biggest missions post-storm um, after nearly every hurricane I've ever been in is the debris recovery or the debris mission. It's a very, uh, very big, big task. Now, in the in the case again, every disaster is different. In the case of, of um, Louisiana, they have asked to be able to have the to run their own debris recovery mission, but they are asking for us to help them with the uh, technical assistance, advising them on maybe how to write the contracts or things to look, look at, uh, or maybe ways to make it more efficient. Um, even still today, nearly 30 days after, after the uh, hurricane's coming on, there are people in New Orleans that have uh, trash still piled in front of their house, and uh, it's, it's not going anywhere. So that seems like a minor thing, picking up trash, but it's a pretty big thing when you're talking about recovery from a hurricane and trying to, to get that area back on its feet you can't really bring more stuff in unless you get the old stuff out. So uh, that's one of the many, many tasks that we uh, we assist with with the, the ES, ESF3 function um, of the um, recovery at the federal level. We also another another big thing too is uh, a, a potential uh, direct housing mission for 3,000 or more residents who are still homeless uh, as of now, and they may be homeless for for a period of time more. Once FEMA does their investigations, their uh, 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 interviews, and they find out what where their needs are, then at some point they're going to turn to the Army Corps and say, hey, can you help us set up a several plots of land so we can put some temporary uh, housing to, uh, for, to help these folks? And that's, sometimes we don't get that mission, and sometimes we do. In this case, uh, for this, this disaster recovery, we are. So we're... Um, ramping up for that so when we actually get the official word that uh, we know the numbers and we know that's coming, uh, we can react to it and, and help out people in a quick fashion as soon as it's decided. Um, you've been down there since pretty much the beginning. How many days have you been down there now? Let's see. I came down here. I'm on day 27. So I'm on, you know, everyone does it with, with disasters like this. I'm on 29 days nonstop without a break. Um, I had a, one day yesterday where I worked maybe an 8 to 10 hour a day, but every other day has been 12 to 14 hours. Uh, during the week, pretty much, I work 14 hours, maybe even 15 in some cases. Uh, on the weekend, I get a little break, a little bit of a reprieve. I get only work 12 hours. Um, and a little, like I said, yesterday was, that was Sunday, so it was nice to actually have a little bit more time to go out and get my laundry and, and uh, uh, go shopping for, for groceries and things like that. Uh, take care of other little personal affairs, in addition to the fact that I'm getting married and on uh, Halloween, and I'm trying to make all these last-minute arrangements from here with my fiance, who's back in the Houston area. Um, so thank goodness I can I can make online orders and have things shipped there. So uh, when I get uh, when I leave here in about 10 days, uh, I should have most everything ready, and we can finish everything up and have the wedding on time on on Halloween. Oh wow! Well, congratulations on uh, your your future wedding, um, future marriage plans. Um, yeah, Bobby, what? Uh, why do you why do you deploy? Why do you do it? 
there's a lot of different reasons I know different. We have some core employees who are always deploying. I know you mentioned that, or I say always, but they deploy a lot. That just means a lot, not always. But um, I know employees have their own reasons um, and it varies, but what is it, why is it that you deploy? Well, I think most people who, who do things like this, they're, um, uh, they, they, they seek the, uh, at times the excitement, the, the adrenaline that comes from it, they, they seek the challenge. Sometimes it comes from it too, but I think ultimately it comes down to people wanting to help other people. I was uh, in Hurricane, I believe it was Ike in Houston uh, many years ago, and after it uh, came through, I, my, myself, myself and my family, we were out without electricity for 18 days, and we were in, in the city of Houston. It was awful. Um, you can imagine how, how hard it was to, to just get to the store and, and uh, be able to have enough gas to get to the store be able to have enough supplies and, and the hardship uh, and misery that it can cause. And, you know, we were, we were well off. I can just imagine people were economically uh, impacted and they, they really had nowhere else to, to turn uh, to, to, to other than the federal government. Um, it's nice for people to know that they have someone that has their back in case they have nowhere else to turn. Um, and the government, especially the Army Corps of Engineers, we have the expertise to, to get the infrastructure up and running, to get the water, get the, the gas, the electricity, um, all, all, you make sure the bridges uh, work and um, get the, the roofs so they don't leak. We, we have the expertise and knowledge to do that, and I like to be part of that team that uh, can help people, in some cases by the thousands, sadly, um, to, to get back on their feet and, and get... Um, Get their lives back to normal because it, it 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 really stinks. You, we see we see pictures and uh, read things on the internet and see pictures on TV and video and and you know it's, we get, kind of get immune and, and uh, numb to, to to the disasters. But when you're living it, it's uh, a totally different story. So um, it's it's a good feeling that myself and others, you know, the 400 other people or so that are out here right now, uh, we get because we know that we're helping people get back on their feet and get their lives back. And um, I always finish with this question. Um, what have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Uh, I always yeah. finish with this question. Um, oh, were you just thinking about it? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking. I would, I would not, not a question, but I would say that in a disaster like this, you have uh, office administrative staff and then people who are out in the field now. Sometimes, in particular, public affairs, we try to, as best we can, get out there and see people in the field that are working. Uh, we have, uh, I think, six or so public affairs people out that are, that are here in the area right now, and half of them are out in the field with their cameras and, and trying to tell the story of the um, men and women that are, that are out in the field helping the uh, contractors, the, the, literally the cast of thousands that are out there replay, repairing roofs with the uh, uh, blue, blue roof uh, tarp that we have. So I would say, as best you can, try to get out and talk, talk with them too, not, not just the public affairs folks, but the people are, people are out in the field because um, you have a lot of people who are doing just a lot of different stuff. I'm just one small part of that. Um, there, there's hundreds of other people that have put their lives on hold uh, and are kind of going through misery that they don't necessarily um, uh, would have coming to them because they're not 
from this area, but they're tr but they're willing to go through it so they can help others. So I mean, when you get a calling like this, um, I think it's it's nice for us, you as public affairs person, my, me as public affairs person, to tell their story so people can can see what we're doing to help others, and hopefully that spirit will reach out there so other people who maybe aren't in that, uh, don't have that ability to help, they can uh, find other ways to help if they can. And, or certainly pay it forward, uh, and, and so when the disaster that they can interact with or help with, they are there, there to uh, respond and help, just like we are right now. Well said, Bobby. Um, and, you know, um, for those of you who are listening, um, Bobby has agreed to try to find me some additional people to... Um, to highlight out there who are who are out in the field and, and hopefully we can bring you a few of those stories um, in the next in the next several weeks. Uh, Bobby, thank you for your time. I know you are busy down there and for you to be able to take, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to to uh, spend talking to me. Um, I just want to say thank you very much. And I know that the people who are going to listen to this uh, will appreciate hearing from your perspective what's going on down there. Awesome. Thanks so, so much for your time. And, uh, and um, I'm, again, I'm just one person. I'm with everyone else here, and I'm glad to be part of this team that um, are working 12, 14 hours to try to help other people that, that need help in the southern Louisiana area. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Corestruction. Corestruction is a production of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Public Affairs Office. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider liking and subscribing, or comment below. We'd love to get your feedback to find out how we can give you better information. You can learn more about the Tulsa District by visiting us at www.swt.usace.army.mil. You can also find us on social media at USACE Tulsa, all one word. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day.